Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. I love The Next Reel Season 4. Do you know why? I don't. Why? Because we got to talk about my favorite movie, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. That's not even an adaptation. Uh, no, but it was such a great part of our, of our great Terry Gilliam series. And a few others in that series were adaptations, like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, adapted from Raspi's stories, and La Jete, which inspired 12 Monkeys. Oh, right. And, and for our Man With No Name trilogy, we saw how Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars was basically stolen from Kurosawa's Yojimbo. We added Labor Day to our Jason Reitman series, adapted from Joyce Maynard's novel. Oof, there's one we'll always regret. Our big Stephen King series covered adaptations like The Shining, Cujo, Christine, and Stand By Me, great horror, and coming-of-age tales. Another Coen Brothers adaptation, too. We got to talk about how they turned Homer's The Odyssey into Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? For our holiday series, we did The Bishop's Wife and The Poseidon Adventure. And who could forget seeing Alec Guinness in the adaptation of Kind Hearts and Coronets during our series dedicated to him. We really need to do more of his films. Truly. We had our first film noir series with classics like Double Indemnity, Detour, and Out of the Past. And our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series with The Thin Man, Sweet Smell of Success, Seconds, and King's Row. So many adaptations. Oh, you're not kidding. Dive deeper into these originals and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support our show. Get the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and start reading today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. You doing anything good this week? It's been a busy week, but I, uh, you know what I, I spent a, a chunk of time doing? I wish you would tell me. While I worked, I spent time listening to uh, John Carpenter's new uh, album. Because, you know, I've been so busy, I haven't had a chance to see a single movie. So yeah. I just sit there. Because you're producing. I, you're just busy yeah, producing all the time. Yeah, I got two TV shows we're doing back-to-back right now, and it's making me pull a few strands of hair out. But, but uh, yeah, while, uh, while I'm trying not to pull any more hair out, I've been uh, listening to some uh, of uh, John Carpenter's new album. You like it, don't you? You know... I, it uh i do actually it's uh it's uh it's called lost themes and he released it uh just a, just a few weeks ago and um yeah it's uh it's funny because even though he just released it very recently it sounds like music from his movies back in the 80s it really sounds like 80s music uh, but i have a great time listening to it it actually in a weird way, actually sounds like better 80s scores than some of his 80s scores were. (laughs) (laughs) Though the bar was fairly low. The bar was pretty low. But uh, yeah, so, you know, it's fun. I've been just enjoying it and just uh, feeling like I'm kind of uh, getting some good old John Carpenter flashbacks. That's good. I'm glad you feel so good. I tried. I tried listening to it. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't. It was... It was too much escape from New York for me. <laughs> well, it's not that bad. It's not it's not that bad, but it definitely does have very John Carpenter uh just a vibe. That that whole musical feel that he uh does so often when he's composing his stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Works for some people, I guess. <laughs> well, I think we should probably just tell the people where we're from. Yeah, where are we from? Hey, everybody, this is The Next Reel. I'm Pete Wright. That there is Andy Nelson. Hiya! And we spoil movies tonight on the show, number five in our series on the works of Sir Alec Guinness with the Neil Simon murder mystery send-up. Murder by Death. Before we get into that, though, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're so insta-clined, you might want to join us at instagram.com slash thenextreel and play the Instagram hashtag ponyprize, hashtag standy versus the people, hashtag guess the movie challenge. Andy, how did we do against the murderous multitudes this week? This was uh, a, a kind of a fun week with a bit of a flashback to uh, 1935's Captain Blood, directed by Michael Curtiz, with Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland. Some fun images that popped up in here that uh, you know led to some 
interesting guesses and some cryptic ones. <laughs> the uh, the Tujbut. Which, <laughs> yeah, which, that, that, I feel like we need some explanation on that from, from Mr. Tilkvist. Did you ever get an answer? Uh, he, he actually said it's, it was Marty Feldman's way of saying turban. He did, uh, he did finally <laughs> respond after a while. That I was caused like, quite, a, uh, quite a stir up in our back channel. What the? <laughs> hey, what who is he talking about? Yes, we couldn't quite figure out what it was. But uh, despite that, three, uh, three images in. Alexander C. Curran came uh, from uh, the pack and nailed it with Captain Blood. So Alexander C. Curran is entered to win the Pony Prize. Outstanding. Andy, it's time. Let's do the trailers. I don't know if I'm going to say I'm excited. I think I'm excited <laughs> for my trailer. <laughs> I'm excited for what my trailer represents. My trailer is, is actually it's an independent film called Kung Fury that looks just absurd in every uh, way, shape, and form. It's a send-up of, like, 80s cop movies. It's, it's kind of almost a weird homage, like, to the, the cops, cop movies, to kung fu movies. And it's just ridiculous in every way. It's a film that pretty, I mean, looks virtually shot entirely on green screen, and then they, they build these actors into these, uh, these crazy landscapes where this uh, you know, former cop, now kung fu master, has like his, his supercar that he can like, you know, fly through the air and, uh, and uh, stop the bad guys. And then he has to go back in time with just ridiculously awesome 80s time travel. This was fantastic. This was what I wanted, like, when I was, those Saturday mornings, I was pumping quarters into Double Dragon, and this is what I was playing in my head. Right, exactly. And and he has to go back in time to stop Kung Fuhrer, <laughs> Adolf Hitler, <laughs> who also apparently is a Kung Fu master. Hey, you got a permit for those guns? I've got your permit right here. The Kung Fu Renegade Cop. I don't want to hear it, Kung Fury. I've just been to City Hall. You just destroyed an entire city block, for Christ's sake. I quit. Now, he must defeat the most evil Kung Fu master in the world. Adolf Hitler, a.k.a. Kung fu -er. Hitler. He's the worst criminal of all time. I need to kill him. It just looks completely absurd in every way. Um, this they actually raise they they looked to raise two hundred thousand dollars on Kickstarter and they ended up raising more than three times that and because uh, <laughs> people want their eighties kung fu let me tell you um, so because of that they ended up uh, they're taking a little longer to get the movie made I guess they're actually looking to release it sometime in two thousand fifteen now they've had a chance to add a couple extra scenes. Looking on their Kickstarter page, there's a, there's a shot of somebody uh, of the Kung Fury uh, guy with a cop dinosaur, like a person with a dinosaur's head and hands. Not quite sure what to make of that. There's some interesting artwork, uh, like Hacker Man, his computer friend, who apparently hacks himself into a giant computer robot that fires lethal computer code. What I love so much about that is the the hacking is here. I'm going to hack you into this computer. You stand on this old like uh, Apple II console. Yeah. <laughs> Just stand on it, and Let's I will hack you back it. in time. <laughs> surf on it through time. It's the best. Oh, it looks 
so absurd. But anyway, they uh, they have that extra money. They're adding a few extra scenes. They're putting in extra money to their effect, and they're looking to release it sometime in 2015. I have no idea when, but uh, I'm going to be tracking it now because oh, I man. want to see it. Do you remember the the first Double Dragon movie? I think I skipped that one. I don't think I ever liked Double Dragon movies. No, they were terrible. <laughs> Man, I can't wait for your movie. I am very excited to see it, and it satisfies uh, everything in my inner 12-year-old. Yes, exactly. That's what I think. That's the reason they got it funded. <laughs> yeah. Boy, my trailer is <laughs> it's just the other end of the world from yours. Uh, so I mentioned last week that uh, what a fan I was of Into the Woods. Uh, you know, I just, I love that we have a bona fide musical at theaters right now, and I doubly love that as of next week, we're going to have two uh, the last five years, contemporary musical coming uh, from uh, the musical film from director Richard uh, Lagravenez uh, and writer uh, Jason Robert Brown uh, stars Jeremy Jordan and unsurprisingly giving her, given her musical cred right now, Anna Kendrick, uh, she is just super charming. Uh, I, you know, I think contemporary musicals are really hard on screen. Even as a fan, I, I still think it's weird to see a couple just burst out in song on a bright New York day. Uh, you know, Joss Whedon can pull it off. Uh, otherwise, it's it's weird. But here, I started to get a little bit of that Buffy once more with feeling vibe. It's just, just snippets and hints, but enough to get me a bit excited to keep my musical buzz on for a few more weeks. Uh, I'm looking forward to this one. Last Five Years opens February 13th. 2015. Pretty good, right? I've never been more attracted to you. I could wander Paris after dark, take a carriage ride through Central Park, but it wouldn't be as nice as a summer in Ohio, where I'm sharing a room with a former stripper and her snake. I love you, Wayne. You think it's too much singing, don't you? Boy, they sure don't stop. <laughs> I think there was one line of dialogue in the trailer. Otherwise, a lot of singing. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, Anna Kenrick, I will say I've been impressed with her uh, her body of work and, you know, going into the Pitch Perfect uh, movie and its sequel. That makes for three, actually, musical movies that she's going to be in in the coming months. Um, along with Into the Woods, which I still haven't seen, and now this, I you know she's she's pretty fantastic. I think that she's a, a great actress and uh, certainly is is pulling some cred, even though this looks like an awful lot of singing. <laughs> you know, it's that I I'm with you. It's an awful lot of singing. Um, it's an awful lot of street singing. Yeah, you know, and that's uh, you uh, you are picking out what I think can be a little bit weird by that, but um, but but there are hints. Hints that they, they move past the awkwardness and actually pull it off. So I, I really am looking forward to it. And I love the music. If you haven't uh, heard the score, pull it up on Spotify or, or Beats or something and, and check it out. Because the, the music is, if you're a fan of musicals, the music is really um, wonderful. So it's a musical about breakups. So take the, the most difficult time in your, in your emotional life. <laughs> uh, and sing about it a lot. Sing. sing a lot about it. <laughs> oh, Andy, uh, you know, yes, you're good, Andy. You're not my kind of podcaster, but you're smart and you smell good. You're not a pansy, I know that. But what the hell are you? I don't feel good about this. There's a number on the wall for all of us, Angel. 
Neil Simon's Murder by Death. Meanwhile, a short, sinister man who looks exactly like Truman Capote is preparing a diabolical weekend for the greatest detectives in the world. As we join them, our five clue persons and their faithful companions are trapped in a mysterious old mansion where a fiendishly ingenious crime is about to take place. The victim is here at this very table at this very moment. And so too, ladies and gentlemen, is the murderer. It's the most stupid theory I ever heard. <laughs> One of us is a mad killer, not to be trusted. Murder by Death. Murder by Death, Andy. 1976 from director Robert Moore, based on the uh, screenplay by the fantastic Neil Simon. How did it hit you? You know, this was a first time for me. And uh, I have to say... I'm super curious about this. I really am because I was, I, I have, well, I don't know. I, but after I watched it, I started getting nervous. Oh, really? I really did. I, I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about you watching this movie and I'm thinking to myself, so this is a comedy, right? It's a spoof, right? It's a, these actors play send-ups of famous fictional sleuths as interpreted by 1976 Neil Simon. And it trucks in what has to be one of the highest counts of stereotypical movie tropes on screen in any one film of the decade. <laughs> and so I started, I, I watched, I thought, does this movie hold up if you're not in it, if you didn't fall in love with it when it was current? The first thing that struck me is how much this is exactly like Clue which we mentioned last week is kind of a guilty pleasure of both of ours. Yeah, yeah. And I just didn't know that at all. So watching this, I was a little surprised that Clue was so much just a another version of this story. And I would say probably one that I still like more than this version. And, you know, I was thinking about that. Is it because it's dated? Is it because this one is was made 10 years earlier? Um or is it just uh, because uh, that one, some of the, the comedy worked better for my sensibilities? Is it because the uh, uh, there definitely is the the difficulty, I suppose, with the uh, <laughs> the way uh, Peter Sellers uh, plays uh, uh, Sidney, uh, his character? Um, but at the same time, it's like when you look reflect on on the the character that he's spoofing, Charlie Chan, Charlie Chan was essentially the same thing. It was no different. Charlie Chan was exactly the same thing. Charlie Chan was a Chinese detective played, <clears throat> played in film by a Swede. Played by a lot of non-Oriental people. <laughs> yeah, and so it's it's funny to uh, to look at that, but at the same time, it's just, you know, I don't know. It just I found it kind of... Uh, uh, funny to watch but uh but kind of a little painful too so it's uh that i think if anything dates this film and makes it probably just not as palatable to modern audiences but i still found it very fun i i think i i, I mean i did really enjoy it quite a bit i i feel like i i wanted it to be a little more clever than it was but at the same time i felt that so much of the writing was just so so good and the the comedy, I think there was some great comedy lines that I just that kept catching me off guard, and I just kept finding myself laughing out loud. 
I'm well. Okay, I'm that is relief uh, that that you say that you actually got some audible laughs. I did too. Uh, this film sneaks sort of sneaks into our series as uh, Sir Alec Guinness uh, does appear as the blind butler among other characters. Uh, and and it, he James makes, Sir Benson uh, James uh, Benson uh, he does make the first half of the film I think particularly amusing uh, in his work there I think he is he's a real light uh, but but like you said I I don't think Murder by Death is a timeless film uh, in, in so much as it's it's a love letter to kind of Earl Biggers Dashiell Hammett and uh, Agatha Christie it it's a film that carries a lot of baggage of the era the jokes are are quaint. Uh, you know, I, I also found myself laughing out loud, uh, uncomfortably in many cases, uh, but most of the jokes are sort of inside jokes. Like if you didn't kind of grow up with it or know the, the, you know, know the tropes or know the characters that they're sending up, um, I, I just don't think this holds up over time. And, and I'm with you. I think clue in as much as it is, um, s- sort of, uh, sterilized, uh, from, murder by death is is a more palatable guilty pleasure it's less offensive in in many regards i think when i was a kid you know since i did grow up with this film i accordingly i love it you know i have a great affinity for what simon was trying to do with the send-ups and i'm i'm a great lover of the you know the source material and and i think the casting is is really just perfect and when I watched it as a kid, I really got it. Like, I got the jokes as a teenager. I thought, this is really funny. And I, I got more of the jokes as I grew a little older. And now I I get the intention of the jokes. And they have just, they they just carry too much weight. Uh, and, and so a lot of the, you know, a lot of the racial gender, um, you know, there's a number of just, uh, you know, there are a number of uh, of issues around sexuality that are, um, you know, that are a little bit troublesome to to watch at this point. It's not played very delicately, and I think it was it would have been really funny to an audience in 1976, and it's just not not that funny now. Um, and I agree with you on the cleverness scale. My memory of this film is that it is vastly more clever than it is now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just expected more. Yeah, which is, I mean, it's always tricky making a film like this because it's one of those uh, stories that at the time holds a lot more originality. And then as time progresses, people pull things from it and it becomes, uh, it ends up becoming something that's uh, that's a little played out because it kind of uh, was, had. I don't want to say set the trend, but it certainly is, uh, had, had, done things that now are more familiar and so especially in the world of mysteries it's it's one of the dangers of of working in that field is like once the mystery is out there it's people are maybe less inclined to go back and revisit the story or the film because they already know the whodunit of the whole thing and and this one is certainly uh the case even though it is a send-up of that whole notion of how those Agatha Christie, Dashiell Hammett, Earl Biggers stories typically unfolded and ended more specifically, uh, it still it still does kind of uh, follow that pattern. So by the time you get to the ending, you're like, oh, okay, well, that was cute. And then you're like, eh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and the, you know, I, part of his intention, I think Neil Simon's intention was to send up how frustrating 
uh, it is, or it was from his perspective, to watch these, you know, or read or watch these detective stories that that just failed to actually be mysteries, right? They would, um, you know, when you deconstruct them, you realize that the that the the detective is suddenly getting uh, all these fantastic clues right at the end of the book that the that the reader could never have put together on their own. Um, you know, it's just sloppy writing, sloppy construction, and I think that was a that was a a major frustration that led to the to this film. And I think it's I think that for me is is one of the failings uh, of the film because by the time you get to the end, it it really I mean as he's sending up all of these like there are so many different potential um, you know solutions. Uh, that by the end it's it's just becomes a big mess. It's not clever. It's not particularly funny, um, and it's just over. You get to the end, and you see that uh, you know all of the different possible answers, like you said, are revealed, and then there's a this final twist at the end as well. And you look back on it, and this is not a film that works when you try to piece it back together from the back. Uh, like you couldn't watch it a second time and it would all make sense. There's no logic to it. It purely is designed as nothing but a send up. And I think that's what takes some of the joy away from it is the fact that it can't work as a story in and of itself. It only works as a send up. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. And the, the challenge there is that by the time you get the final reveal, um, none of the potential solutions are even remotely satisfying, right? right? We, we, we get to the end of this film, the end of this hour and a half with these characters, and uh, there is no reward for our attention. It was, it was a little bit, it was funny along the way, but, but it, there was no reward, I think. Exactly. So that's a problem um, that, that I had with it. What did you think of our, um, our hero, Sir Alec Guinness, the hero of our series? And his role as the blind butler. Well, I will say he did it really well. I did have a blast watching him. He he does the the blind butler really well. Uh, I was a little um, the first thing that we see. I think was one of the most awful moments that he had in any of the films that we had to watch, and that's him stamping the letters. I was just like, oh, we're gonna do this, and we're gonna see it, him doing every single one of these. And, of course, he's not actually stamping the letters. He's stamping the desk. And it was, uh, you know, I was like, oh, that was pretty terrible. But from that point on, once he's actually interacting with everybody, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I thought he was, uh, he, he played it really well. And I think that my favorite moments for him actually were toward the end with the reveal. And, you know, because we think he's dead. And, then of course, he's not. And or, or is he? Yeah, it's hard to say whether he was really dead or not. I really can't whether he say. Really existed? Like, <laughs> yeah, did, was, was he, he ever even there? in the film? <laughs> right. But you get to his last set of performances, and I think that really, for me, harkened back to Kind Hearts and Coronets, which was great to see as the back end of this uh, of this series. As and now we've kind of bookended it with these two films where here he is playing this blind butler for the majority of the film. And then all of a sudden, as all these different uh, solutions are revealed by our detectives, he ends up getting to go through very small but very uh, well-done transformations. 
within just the way that he's portraying himself. And I thought that was just brilliant. I had so much fun watching him, particularly when he becomes the daughter and, uh, and, uh, and just goes through the motions of being these different people as the reveals are made. And that for me, uh, made like everything worth it. I agree with you. I think those changes were so subtle, uh, it really elegant performance in the, in the final, just five minutes. Uh, and, and you're right when he switches to the daughter and he does that that move with his arm yes. across his hat and his hat, which was this kind of broad rimmed fedora suddenly gets because of the way he's holding it, the brim and the front goes up and down on the side as he's holding it to cover the side of his head. It, it is so it goes from masculine to feminine so fast, uh, but it's not a cut like it's not a it's not a trick. It's just performance. And it was really cool. Uh, very subtle. So I, I agree with you. I thought he was terrific. The other thing I think of note is his work just as a physical actor. Um, I, it, I think it is difficult, uh, having never either played a blind person or, or been blind, um, to, <laughs> what is that? Does that sound weird? Does that come <laughs> off as weird? Both of those things are true. They are true. Um, it's good to know though. <laughs> that, it, that I, I, you know, I, and and knowing that Alec Guinness is not or was not blind in this film, I thought his portrayal of the physicality of the blind butler uh, having to just the way he feels around, uses the cane, feels around, but then has to serve the soup and the conversations that he has with the deaf mute cook, um, I, I thought were just Really great moments for him in the film. I really enjoyed watching him, um, watching him play that role, and knowing obviously at the end that in fact he's not blind and he was pretending to be blind, as he was blind in the film, um, makes it I guess slightly more rewarding, or less. I'll never know. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, so, that. you know, the, the setup, we haven't really done the setup of the film. The story takes place in this, um, you know, isolated country home uh, that is is owned and operated by eccentric uh, godzillionaire Lionel Twain. <laughs> <laughs> and his address is at Tutu Twain. Uh, and the train I only just got that. <laughs> really? Just now? <laughs> When you said it, I don't know why, because I just, in my head, I was always 22. I don't know. I never. <laughs> Seriously? That's pretty funny. You got the Lionel Twain bit, though, right? Lionel Trains? No, I didn't even get that. Oh, That's... Andy. I, I apparently I wasn't thinking about trains when I watched the movie. <laughs> they, I mean, talk about hanging a hat on it. They, I mean, they just it, it, the Tutu Twain bit was when when Sydney and his adopted Japanese son, he said, "Oh, Pop, I found the address, Tutu Twain," and Sydney says, "Stop! Like, don't say anymore. Let the joke sit. People will miss it if you keep talking. Shut up." <laughs> Even that was not good enough for you. No, no. That just, uh, yeah. Well, so the the setup here is that Lionel Twain, uh, played by Truman Capote, uh, and his blind butler, James Sir Bensonmum, uh, and their deaf mute cook, Yetta, 
they are Truman uh, Truman Lionel has set up this event where he invites f- five of the greatest famous detectives to his uh, to his house to his estate to solve a murder, a murder that will take place on the stroke of midnight. It's kind of locked. It's a locked room uh, mystery. You know, they lock all the doors. Everybody has to stay at this place and solve this crime. And so we have Inspector Sidney Wang, as we've said, is based on uh, Earl Earl Dare Biggers, uh, Chinese detective Charlie Chan. And uh, that is played by Peter Sellers. Uh, and he brings his, his adopted Japanese son. Uh, Dick and Dora Charleston, played by David Niven and Maggie Smith, are modeled after Dashiell Hammett's Nick and Nora Charles from The Thin Man. Um, we have uh, Milo Perrier, played by James Coco, is uh, Agatha Christie's Hercule Poirot. And I love his butler, chauffeur, uh, Marcel Cassette, played by young James Cromwell. This is his very first feature film role. Yeah, that was weird. Uh, and uh, Sam Diamond is played by Peter Falk, and he uh, he's uh, parodying. Is that the thing? Can you parodying? Yes, he's par- a, yeah, he's sure. a parodying another Dashiell Hammett, uh, Sam Spade from the Maltese Falcon, and he brings Tess Skeffington, played by Eileen Brennan, who is, I think, the only uh, actress to actually move on from this to go to Clue. Um, yes, and um, Jessica Marbles, finally played by Elsa Lanchester. Um, uh, parodies uh, Agatha Christie's Miss Marple and um, she <laughs> she shows up with her nurse who uh, is she's actually caring for her ancient nurse Miss Withers okay so that's essentially that boils it down that's me summarizing the cast from Wikipedia because that they've it's written very nicely it's there. nicely organized it is nicely organized <laughs> there so um I uh, so we move on. Uh, let's go to uh, Lionel Twain, Truman Capote. How do I look so young? Quite simple: a complete vegetable diet, twelve hours sleep a night, and lots and lots of makeup. Yeah, that was strange to see him turn up. I guess this was, uh, the, I believe, the first film that he had actually been in. Yeah, I believe so. Um, what was? What did he do? He didn't do much after right i don't think so he no, just he went was... back to where was he from kansas i don't think he was from kansas he was in new york no 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 he was um he was louisiana he was born in louisiana not kansas but he uh, wrote he spent a lot of time in kansas I th- i'm sure it was kansas because that's where he wrote in cold blood right right he uh, oh you lived know there a, for long, like six years or something and, yeah. yeah 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 so he uh wow you know you know what his name was yeah truman streckfus persons streckfus there's a middle name you don't hear too often anymore wow i know classic so uh he obviously wrote a lot of things he has five writing credits he was in uh he was in annie hall five five, five, five acting credits he was in annie hall after this Right, the which is, I year. think, the only other film that he had That's been the in. the film, right? TV movie. The, the other stuff is all narration. In. Yeah, it's all narration. Look at that. Huh. Voice but, as Mr. Capote. I mean, he was really known more for writing projects. I mean, that's what he was. He was a writer, and he had written, uh, obviously, In Cold Blood and the adaptation of that, uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, The Innocents. He had, you know, definitely done quite a bit of uh, of stuff, and... Uh, 
and uh, was, you know, kind of a notorious writer. Everybody kind of knew who he was. And uh, yeah, it was just, I was not expecting it. In fact, I don't know. I, I watched the trailer first and I didn't think it was him. And then it said Truman Capote. I was like, wow, that surprised me. Uh, so he was, uh, what did you think of his actual delivery as the eccentric godzillionaire? Do you believe in it? Uh, yeah, I mean, he certainly is eccentric. Uh, he's just one of those uh, wacky guys. He's got just strange delivery. Uh, you know, I, I I liked the way that he played the character. I thought he felt eccentric. He, I mean, obviously, a lot of that is in the writing, the way that he disappears and reappears with the lights turning on and off. There's the big psychedelic drug induced uh thing that goes on when he first appears and and nobody knows what's going on the um uh just the strangeness of the setup of this house that where rooms move around and and he uh like that moment when he's sitting in the chair and the door's open and his chair just goes flying backward for him to disappear out of the room it's just like weird things like that all seemed to end up making sense because Truman Capote was in the movie yeah, I actually I agree with that. I that would not have that would not have worked uh, <laughs> if, for example, Lionel Twain was played by David Niven. No, uh, I exactly. don't think he could have pulled that off. Um, it, I agree with you. And the house is something that we should talk about. The the sort of well, I guess it it's the effects <laughs> portion of our show. Uh huh. I have a hard time uh, kind of figuring out how to talk about it because there were so. Well, obviously, so few effects. It starts by hinting at this, um, hinting at the fact that this house is a little bit strange. When three of the detectives leave the room, they go to the kitchen because they hear gunshots. And when they come back, they're in an empty dining room. All of the people who were in the dining room are now gone. Dining dining room is perfectly clean, and and uh, then the cow on the wall begins to speak, and it's Truman Capote, who's uh, whose head is stuck inside a or is inside a moose. Uh, right, the moose on the wall. And uh, he tells them, go outside, count to ten, and try the door again. So they do, and when they come back, uh, you know, they open the door again, and suddenly everything's back. And that that is when they start discovering that everything in this house there are two of. Um, and so there are two bathrooms, there are two dining rooms, there's two of everything. And when they close the door, all the rooms shift. Uh, and that, It's like Cube. <laughs> it's like just like Cube. Uh, and I, I, I sort of, I, I find that charming. And then they start pulling these really absurdist transformations, right? We meet Yetta, for example, and it turns out Yetta isn't a person. Yetta was a mannequin. Yetta, who we've seen wandering around, uh, and not speaking, but she was, she was there. She was a real person. And suddenly they find her in a box and she's now made of plastic. And so, um, I, you know, obviously we know by the end of the film that Yetta was presumably there all along. Uh, but the fact that these hard-boiled detectives, um, you know, try to play off that they believe that Yetta, the walking and talking cook, was now plastic mannequin in a box, um, I found that a bridge too far. That was definitely a bridge too far. And... Same with the disappearing, reappearing body of the uh, and clothes of the butler, which I actually thought was very funny the first time. But 
the, the first time, but it, it was, it was just, it's absurdist. And that's where the film ended up taking its turn down this absurdist road where all of a sudden, uh, I wasn't, uh, I was finding myself enjoying it less because, uh, because the absurdist nature of some of this stuff, just, there's no logic to it. And, I don't know, maybe in the world of Clue, I like the absurdist elements more because it just kind of seems to all fit together more uh, in, as a more of a cohesive whole. But I don't Here, remember it being so staged in, in Clue. I remember it being much more of a character kind of weirdness. Well, yeah, and I don't remember anything where it's like they walk into a room, they find the dead butler. They leave, they come back. They find that the butler is gone, but his clothes are still there. They leave and they come back. They find that the butler's naked body is now there, but his clothing is gone. That was... But, and then really they leave, uh, and then uh, Monsieur Perrier leaves the room, and when he comes back, he is now in the butler's clothes. Yeah, right. But they never, they never explain that. They just say, don't... He says, don't ask... Uh, it, it's it's too embarrassing, I think he says. Anyhow, it's, yeah. it, it's just too much. Don't ask. They never explain how he ended up in the clothes, and that never that was never an issue for anybody, any one of these detectives who all come at detecting at at solving crimes from a different sort of angle. You have to believe that one of them would have thought twice about letting that particular event go. Yes. It just wasn't. It wasn't funny enough to not make me think twice about the mystery itself. I did ultimately want there to be a mystery to solve. Well, that's the thing. The thing you've got uh, the the thing that if I don't want to say irks me, but it's something that I wish that they could have done better. There's a lot of great comedy playing with these five detectives and their uh, partners, or whatever you want to call them, the significant others, etc. That they brought along. I enjoy so much of that, but what I would love to have seen is to actually have these guys really have something to do. There's nothing that they really have to do. They run in and out of the room a few times, then they go to their own suites, and they each escape a near death, and then they all kind of come up with their own solution. It was very little going on. Structurally, it felt a little out of balance in that regard, too. I think that's a really good point. We spend so much of the film in the dining room, right? We spend a good portion of the film in the introductory, you know, segment. When we get all the couples are coming into the house, there's there's a lot of that. But then we spend so much time in the dining room, um, you know, wandering around between the dining room and the bathroom and the kitchen, that by the time we get to the bedrooms, we have so little time for these characters to actually try to solve a crime that it almost feels like they just sort of wash their hands of the story, right? They're just, we're just sort of done. Um, and, and then the movie ends and it's so short. So it seems so top heavy, like really heavy in the front of, you know, this single set, um, a lot of people in the same room, uh, that by the time we get any sort of a break, uh, any sort of room to breathe and kind of experience these characters on their own, um, it's over. That was really the thing for me. I kept looking at the time because I, I, I looked at it ahead of time just to see how long it was. And we were still waiting to get introduced to all the characters or not get introduced, but have them all arrive and kind of settle into this into this uh, mansion and into this mystery story halfway through the film. And I was like, man, this is really a long setup. And then I kept watching and they were all in their rooms. And that's when they were having these death moments, uh, each of them set up with uh, some moment where they had to, you know, escape some form of uh, potential death. 
And the movie had like less than 10 minutes. I'm like, how is this movie going to end in in less than 10 minutes if we're only at this point where there's no nobody has even come close to getting anything solved yet? Well, it's and going then to it, end cheaply is, when it's, yes, is the way it's going to end. It's exactly what it did. It ended very cheaply. And while I did enjoy, like we already discussed Alec Guinness and how brilliant he is through that whole last scene. And it's, you know, I, I, I see how uh, Neil Simon is playing with the uh the tropes of these types of of mystery stories it did feel very rushed so to this point andy we don't meet truman capote we don't meet our benefactor until 43 minutes into the film yeah that's that's like the midpoint of the film that's that is just death to the to the balance of the story because we want like i i think this film would have played so much better had we gotten them into the house and gotten them to, into dinner to do the setup within the first 10 minutes right let us let us see why they're there and then let them do their their sort of bickering or or you know start the film give them a yeah. chance to be detectives meeting the benefactor that whole setup of this mystery should really be the inciting incident of the film that should be the thing that happens um partway through uh, that first act that kind of pushes us into the rest of the story. Having it be the midpoint of the story it just really does feel quite tedious in today's uh, today's modern storytelling age. Uh, I feel like we might be being a little bit unnecessarily hard on it, just because it the intention of the film. Yeah, um. <laughs> I mean, it is as as the as I just said. They said light and is substantial. It is. It's not meant to be a whole lot. I mean. Yes, there is that send-up element that uh, Neil Simon was doing, but it was all for fun. And if you look at it that way, yes, it is fun. I did enjoy it. I mean, I you know, we both still walked away saying we laughed a lot. It it is something that you can still watch and enjoy. It's just not anything that uh, I feel I need to rush out and watch again. Let's let's just buzz through the um, the main uh, characters, though. I feel like we would be doing a disservice to the film by not at least reflecting a bit on Peter Sellers. One moment, please. Very interesting theory, Mr. Charleston. But you overlook one very important point. And that is? He's stupid. He's most stupid theory I ever heard. <laughs> yeah. Very interesting. I mean, like we already said, Charlie Chan is a character who is played by um, a number of different characters. I, I didn't know this, but Charlie Chan, the character... Uh, was initially portrayed by uh, East Asian actors, and the films just had very little success. And so then they changed it to the Swedish actor, Warner Oland, who started uh, in Charlie Chan Carries On. The film became uh, very popular. He did 15 more films. He died. Somebody else did it, uh, made 22 more. Then more. somebody else did it. There ended up being over four dozen Charlie Chan films made, which is just is crazy. And a lot of people, even just with Charlie Chan, there's there's people who who are pro Charlie Chan, saying that he is portraying an intelligent, heroic, benevolent, honorable Asian character. And then there are all the people who say it's uh, you know showing these uh, Oriental people which is very stereotypical. They can't speak fluent English. They are are stuck in uh, their tradition. They're subservient. All of that. And, uh, yes, I, I mean, Peter Sellers 
is a master at this sort of uh, performance, but I don't know. It just it it did feel a little uncomfortable to me. What was it that was uncomfortable? Well, just the nature of it. Just and you know, I guess it's only uncomfortable looking at it through today's eyes. Back then, when he was doing this, it may not have been uncomfortable. So, I mean, I can put myself into it and watch it from that perspective, knowing that forty years ago, nearly, it's not something that people would have really been bothered by too much. Now, I'm just like, you know, if I want to watch an Asian character that just feels so stereotypical on screen, I'd rather see an Asian person trying it. Yeah, I, I I guess I agree with that. I I feel like they were, you know, obviously, and again, if you know what they're sending up, if you know what they're lampooning, it makes it a little bit easier to stomach. I mean, these the original films were, were ripe with the grammatical uh, issues, and, and I think they made a big uh, play on that, as, as Twain says over and over, you know, how can one of the world's greatest detectives not know how to say his pronouns? Um, it, they, they make a big deal about the things that they wanted to make a big deal about, you know? Yeah. I just didn't find those things all that funny. I did find myself laughing often at his, uh, his use of idiom. Um, you know, I think he has some, it's a, it's a pretty well scripted part, like a comedic part, you know, it's, he's funny, he's dry, he's in, he comes in in all the right in all the right places, um, you know, his, his lines come in in all the right places in these big group scenes. Uh, and so I enjoyed seeing him. I particularly enjoyed seeing him, you know, maybe ironically, I enjoyed seeing him in the makeup. Like I, I felt like he, like Alec Guinness, uh, is, is a wonderful comedic character actor and he's just use of his body and, and the use of his face and, and doing the teeth work, like we were sort of talking about last week. Um, I, I think it was really nice to watch him in that, in that role. I found myself just getting a sense of, of joy in that role and his relationship with his adopted Japanese son. Right. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Yeah. Uh, how about Sam, uh, Sam Spade, not Sam Spade. Peter Falk. Sam Diamond. Sam, oh, Sam Diamond, yeah. Because I gave you a $50 bill and the gas was only five bucks. Maybe you come back. Maybe you wouldn't. I couldn't take that chance, Angel. Don't you trust me, Sam. Trust you? The last time that I trusted a dame was in Paris in 1940. She said she was going out to get a bottle of wine. Two hours later, the Germans marched into France. Oh, I'm sorry, Sam. Sorry nothing. Give me my change. Uh, Peter Falk is just... He's so fun to watch. I mean, he's great. And this was actually a really fun part. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I mean, it, it goes down some roads that I'm like, eh, a little uncomfortable. But I did kind of enjoy the whole, uh, the twist that they had with the character, both as initially being this, you know, that the Sam Spade type of character, all of a sudden becoming this guy who apparently is hanging out in gay bars all the time to all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, now he's just an actor pretending to be this detective, back to, oh, he know is this detective. I thought he played that well. <clears throat> I really liked the uh, the moment when he reveals that he is just this actor. His personality changed, and, and like Alec Guinness, he actually took a nice twist to that character that I thought worked really well and was pretty believable. I did too. I enjoyed watching him. He's, you know, Peter Falk is 
has become that character. You know, he's he's. It doesn't really matter what era you see Peter Falk; he's always pretty much Columbo. Um, and uh, you know, even the Princess Bride, he's he's Columbo. But uh, I, I also enjoyed that. I it was. Would you say Would you say that's true in Corky Romano? In Corky Romano, I I uh, maybe is it is that should that be on my list of shame? I don't think I've ever seen it. No, it should not be on your list of shame. Was it that good? You liked it that much? Oh uh, no! That I'm, was I that need Chris, to write a blog Kattan. post. That was that Chris Kattan Saturday Night Live. Hey, uh, hang on, know. I'm sending a quick tweet. Andy says he loves Chris Kattan <laughs> movies. Uh, <laughs> Why I ought to. I uh, I really enjoy uh, uh, Peter Falk in this film. I enjoy his his character. I f- I find. Um, uh, I, I think he's. I, I think he has some genuinely funny lines. I think the closeted uh, homosexual in the gay bar thing. Um, that that's another one that's a little bit of a bridge too far for me. I just, you know, it's maybe it's because again of the time. It's the baggage of the seventies. Um, but I found that's where it started taking his character into angry humor, um, and it wasn't that charming. Um, detective humor anymore right right uh yeah i loved his relationship with eileen brennan however i thought she was terrific yeah Uh, she's always great i just love Eileen brennan yeah and it it was i mean that was a real treat seeing her in this knowing that she ends up in in clue yeah 10 years later yeah uh david niven david niven maggie smith what a pair. I, oh. They they work so well together, and he is just the perfect sort of person to deliver the lines, both of them, really, to deliver kind of that Nick and Nora Charles type of lines. Not many people come to the manor these days. It's nice to hear guests again. Thank you. You are? Uh, Benson, Mum. Thank you, Benson. Uh, no, 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 no. Benson, Mum. My name is Benson, Mum. Benson, Mum? Yes, sir. James, sir. Benson, Mum. James, sir? Yes, sir. James Sir Benson, ma'am. Yes, sir. Howard. My father's name, sir. What was your father's name? Howard. Howard Benson, ma'am. Your father was Howard Benson, ma'am. Leave it be, Dickie. I've had enough. Ah, here we are. The late Mrs. Twain's room. She died in here. Oh, dear. Died of what? She murdered herself in her sleep, sir. You mean suicide? Oh, no. It was murder, all right. Mrs. Twain hated herself. Uh, they did such a great job as uh, Mr. and Mrs. Charleston, uh, and uh, I thought they just worked well together. Again, there's the awkward stuff going on, you know, the uh, the bit where Lionel won't let the wives speak, and just kind of, you know, the, the things like that that felt a little uncomfortable going back to, uh, well, so far it seems every one of these <laughs> pairings has some uh, bit of un- uncomfortable moments. But uh, for the most part, these two, I thought, just were a perfect pair, and I had a great time with them. Well, we started with these with these three pairs, which have some uncomfortable moments. I had no uncomfortable moments that I picked up off of uh, Milo Perrier or Jessica Marbles. I agree. Yeah, those two, I, there were no problems with those ones. They were, they were goofy, uh, funny, sort of docile, unoffensive 
characters. I'm sure somebody can find a reason to be offended by them, but I, I did not. Uh, I thought, um, you know, I thought Marcel Cassette, as we, we mentioned, James Cromwell was, uh, I thought he was very funny in this, um, <laughs> especially when he jumps out of bed to try to, you know, as the ceiling starts to come down to crush them, he jumps out of bed and what is he wearing? Some sort of mesh pajamas? <laughs> it's really... <sighs> That was really surprising. To Just see. That was strange. Fantastic. Um, and uh, James Coco as as Perrier, I thought was was really funny when he when he begins to lament the death of his poodle. <laughs> Your sweetheart, my poodle. He was a most cruel man. Monsieur Twain would come to France every season to hunt poodles. He was great. I always uh, remember him from uh, Man of La Mancha. That's just, uh, I think that's probably the only place that I uh, recognize him from, except maybe, uh, I think he was in one of the Muppets movies. Uh, Jessica Marbles and uh, Estelle Winwood. Um, Stel Winwood is the ancient nurse who doesn't really speak much until the end, although the level of glee that she exudes when she says murder poo, she gets so excited that somebody's going to be killed, uh, is really great. Yeah, it's a weird little character. It's like, <laughs> I was like, that's strange, this nurse. That... But... It was it was cute. I, I enjoyed seeing Elsa Lanchester again. We've talked about her several times now. Um, actually, her and David Niven fairly recently on our uh, uh, Bishop's Wife episode. I'm not one to use hyperbole, ladies and gentlemen, but I'll tell you this. For the first time in my life, I had the caca scared out of me. What do we know about Robert Moore? This was his first film. This was uh, the first thing that he directed, and he did not direct much. He directed the the... I is it officially a sequel, The Cheap Detective, or is it just kind of a uh, just kind spiritual of another sequel? Yeah, I think it's more of a spiritual sequel that uh, Neil Simon and Robert Moore put together. The Cheap Detective is uh, a similar sort of story that Moore is a parody of just Bogart movies, uh, Casablanca and Maltese Falcon. But Eileen Brennan also popped up in that, and of course uh, Peter Falk plays kind of the uh, he plays Lou Peckinpah, the uh, send up of bogey yeah i haven't but, i actually uh, yeah i it's been a long time since i've seen that film and i think i've only seen it once it was not great hmm. well i i had heard of murder by death i hadn't even heard of the chief detective so i guess that says everything yeah other than that uh it doesn't look like he really did a whole heck of a lot i mean he he had done a lot of tv and that's where he he came from the world of tv he directed a lot of Rhoda uh, before he went into Murder by Death, and then he did some more TV stuff, a lot of stuff with Neil uh, Simon, and then The Chief Detective in Chapter 2, and that's his last uh, feature credit in 1979, so really not a lot of stuff. And he died young, right? I think he died right after that, like in the early 80s? He was 56. He died in 84. What else you got? I think that's about it. Oh, Nancy Walker. She's one of those faces that uh, you see. And I mean, you know, her little bit of when she comes in to scream because the butler is dead. 
that was a funny little gag. You know, it wasn't uh, the best thing in the world, but it was still, it, it, it made me chuckle. She's one of those faces that I just recognize. And I, I was looking through her stuff and I couldn't figure out from where, but I know that I'd seen her. I think it was just from a lot of TV that she was popping in. It's just one of those very recognizable faces. Uh, did you catch Fay Ray? Mm-mm. Fay Ray was in this movie. She was? Mm-hmm. Now, you know, where? of course, Fay Ray from the uh, classic King Kong. Right. Among many other classics. Fay Ray played the Screaming Doorbell archive, <laughs> archive oh, sound. You're kidding. I, I have no motive to joke <laughs> with you about this. That's funny. Was it the big scream from King Kong? Well, there were a couple of screams, but yeah, that's my understanding. That I did not go back funny. and watch King Kong to verify, but <laughs> that's, uh, that's Fay Ray. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the music. Dave Grusin. Yeah, he he's a composer who he was very big at this time. Um, you know, he definitely had a lot of stuff going on in the seventies, sixties, seventies, into the eighties. Did the music for the Goonies? Did the and, music uh, for the Fabulous Baker Boys? Yeah, he's he's definitely had some uh, some good stuff going on, and uh, a lot of Oscar nominations, Grammys, all that sort of stuff. Um, I like a lot of his stuff and I thought the music in this was just, it was, it was fun. It was spirited. It worked well in context of the story. I liked it more than you liked it. I think I really, I really enjoy Dave Grusin's. I just enjoy his, his, um, his general voice, uh, in his scores. I, I love that sort of jazzy frenetic jazzy, um, sound. And, and this, this really has it. It's that sort of race around race around the castle kind of, um, uh, music that it makes me think of clue actually, ironically, which he didn't do the score for. Um, uh, but it, it, it makes me, it just makes me happy. Um, so I, you know, he, he has a, I think a good connection with the, uh, with scoring these kinds of films. Oddly, thinking about this movie, all I can hum in my head is music from Clue. So I guess is that's that funny. Why, I guess that's why I, 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 you know, his music I think worked, but Clue stands out in my he- head more. That's really funny. Yeah. Did uh, you know that Dave Grusin uh, studied music at uh, University of Colorado Boulder? I did. He's from Littleton. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, he's a Colorado guy. And I, you know, everything else was just, you know, I, I didn't see any big performances by any members of the crew that really made me stop and say, wow, that was amazing. David M. Walsh, uh, director of photography, John Burnett, editor. I, there was nothing in here that was particularly uh, earth shattering for me. It was all fairly run of the mill. Yeah, I agree. I mean, nothing stood out that much. If anything stood out, it was some of the comedy writing by Neil Simon um, that I think, you know, he, he this was a one of his straight screenplays. This was not based on uh, anything else that he had done. And, uh, you know, I thought he did a fine job. There were times where it felt really stagey. Uh, like we said, so much of it takes place in these in the one room or kind of those couple rooms. It felt uh, it felt very uh, much like I was um, just watching a stage version of something, right? But you know, I still um, I did still come out of it enjoying it. Had a fun time with it, and uh, yeah, 
Well, I'm glad you did. I'm glad we watched this one again. I had a fun time with it, too. I think if you are interested in uh, uh, taking a trip back in time to see what cinematic uh, racism and homophobia looked like in a comedy... And sexism. And sexism 40 years ago in comedy 40 years ago. You should watch this film because uh, you'll get a chuckle out of it. Maybe not for the reasons that uh, were originally intended, but it, it, it will give you a chuckle. Um, and, uh, you know, we all uh, need, need to chuckle every now and again. Yes, we do. You know, I, I couldn't find any... Any information as far as the cost of this one, but it, you know, I mean, it did pretty well for itself. It ended up uh, domestically grossing $32.5 million, which adjusted figures to be all about $133 million. So, you know, that's, a, I think, for the type of movie it is, I think that's a pretty fair amount of money to make. Do you, do you find out if it made any, uh, if it had got any uh, awards? I didn't find out if it got any awards. I don't believe it got. I think uh, Truman Capote any... was nominated for something. Best new act, not an Oscar, but best new actor uh, in a film. Is that a thing? Is that oh, that's to, like, like a, a, one of those Golden Globes? Yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of a Golden yeah. Globey. Yeah. BAFTA. Best Dewey. acting debut in a motion picture by a male, Truman Capote, for a Golden Globe. There you go. And Neil Simon did get nominated by the WGA for best comedy written directly for the screen. So, there you go. Yeah. Uh, with that, Andrew, I think we should rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you can see how our films stack up. We've got our we've got our golden ticket list now. It's a hundred and some odd movies. This is going to make 170. 170. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're going to see. I don't think, I, I, I'm not, I don't think it's looking great. I don't think so. I think uh, uh will this beat 150? All right, let's see. Murder by Death or Oh Brother Where Art Thou? Oh Brother Where Art Thou? Yes indeed. Murder by Death or The Sandlot? The Sandlot. The Sandlot. Murder by Death or Major League? Major League. Yeah, I think so. Murder by Death or The Blob? Murder by Death. Uh, yeah, I think I would pick Murder by Death there. Murder by Death or <laughs> Yee, a one and a two. <laughs> Please. It's totally oh. Murder by Death. I would, okay. <laughs> I would actually pick Murder by Death only because it's it's half the length of Yee. <laughs> even though Yee, I find a much more profound and powerful film. Um, but Murder by Death, I mean, you know, easy chuckles. Easy chuckles. Murder by death or Bull Durham? Well. Are you waiting me out? Yeah. I hate you. <laughs> Bull Durham. There you go. Murder by death. Oh, there you go. 155. Wow. 155. All because of Bull Durham, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Curse you. Sorry. Sorry. You know what's at 150? What? Escape from New York. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Nope. See, that's where Flick Chart has failed us. I know. Because I know. tell me you wouldn't out you wouldn't outrank. You would I watch would murder, murder by, by death, death before Escape, from, escape New from New York. I totally would. Oh man. This is why from time to time 
you know, you want to do re-rankings, but yes. I don't know if I don't know if I'm up. For, <laughs> no, no, we're certainly not up for it tonight. <laughs> no. Where do we go from here? Well, we are, you know, I will say, I'm really sad that we're done with our Alec Guinness Oh, series. me too. I had so much fun with this. I feel like we need to have an annual Alec Guinness series. There are so many great film. movies. <laughs> yeah. His, it was so fun going back and watching all of this great stuff that he has done in the past, all of which are comedies. And it's just not something that I think of when I think of Alec Guinness. So it's nice to have that part of my memory refreshed and and look at him as a very funny, very talented actor. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I I am right with you on doing uh, doing a mini Alec Guinness series every year. I would love to build out that collection because there's so many of his films I haven't seen. And, oh, yeah. and I think uh, I, I, I really enjoyed most of the films that we watched this, <laughs> this series. Uh, but this wraps up our, our series here uh, for our 2015 Guinness and takes us into something new. We're going to do our Listener's Choice episode. This is the uh, the Pony Prize winner from 2014, Cameron Ryan. She won, and her pick is the fantastic Junet Caro film, Delicatessen. You excited about this one? I'm very excited about this one. Me too. I really love that film. Me too. I'm very much looking forward to this. And uh, so we will uh, we will talk to uh, Cameron uh, in uh, just about a week, and we'll, we'll be talking about Delicatessen just after. Looking forward to it. Any other news for the people? That's it. I got to go to bed. All right. I got to go uh, work on the psychedelic lighting in my room, and then I got to rig my chair so it pulls me out of the room really fast and... I'm building this big contraption that's actually going to switch rooms in my house. Although, I'm going to decorate the room so they look identical. And then I, I finally found a moose head that I'm going to mount on the wall, and I'm going to hollow it out so that I can climb up into it and I can peek out through it and look at people. And then, you know, with all the pictures Mr. Contrarian says murder by death is humorless and stale. This is a tremendous cast who are utterly wasted, misdirected, and edited to come across at the most bland cliches of their entire careers. I suspect that an honest love for Agatha Christie novels, the company of other fun and inspiring actors, and a fat paycheck convinced them all to accept this project in spite of their butter judgment. Somehow, every drop of charisma was drained from Peter Sellers and Peter Falk, the look in their eyes suggests they knew they had made a tremendous mistake on the very first day of shooting. Somebody's rich daddy wrote a huge check and went on a cruise around the world before reading the script. <laughs> I kind of I lost my meter at the end, but somebody's rich daddy makes me smile. That is funny. I need that to be my ringtone. Somebody's <laughs> Somebody... rich daddy makes me smile. That's horrible. Stop that it. That is funny. You bring out the worst in me. Well, mine is also a one star. Oh. By by Speechless. Doubling says, down on the one stars. Yeah, that's right. Speechless says, high expectations, major letdown. Speechless is good at, at keywords in all caps. 
And then not starting with a capital letter <laughs> at the start of the sentence. <laughs> well, I really expected this to be a funny movie, given the reviews as well as the stellar cast. But aside from a couple of big, all caps, small laughs and the surprise ending, this movie is an all caps dud. The jokes and the plot both fall flat. Ugh, I wish I hadn't wasted my time on this one. Major disappointment. And you don't want to get stuck with him. No. Major disappointment. <laughs> uh, one of the comments said, I kind of think her posting nom de guerre should be changed to brainless. Oh. Mm, ouch. You don't have anything nice to say on the internet. Amazon. Can you hear that? Yeah, it sounds like you're flossing or something. Andy, are you serious? Yes. That's exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> you're kidding. <laughs> that's, un- that's uncanny. Why How did you, you know that? Why are you flossing? Uh-huh. I had a uh, particularly um, particularly troublesome meal. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.